0: Welcome to the Outpost Bible Church podcast. My name is Pastor Alex Rodriguez. The Outpost Bible Church seeks to see men and women delivered by Christ, discipled in Christ, and deployed for Christ in His kingdom. Our values are to be Christ-centered, gospel-driven, scripturally grounded, prayerfully dependent, and mission-focused. Here you will be able to find all of our Sunday morning and Sunday evening sermons. God bless. Father God, we come to you this afternoon in the name of Christ, who is our Lord, our Savior, our King, and our friend. Father, as we open your word now, we ask that you would grab hold of our hearts and that you would incline them, focus them on you, God, as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There are so many things that can distract us during this time. Everything from school is about to start, and I'm excited thinking about my friends, and I want to go pick out school supplies, to baskets of laundry that need to be folded, to work commitments, to a lawn that needs to be mowed. There's so many things that are creeping into our hearts and our minds that can distract us. And so we ask, Lord, that you in your grace, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would help our hearts, our minds be focused on you. That as we open your word, that you would open our eyes and that we would see your glory, your wonder, and your beauty in it that you, Holy Spirit, would take each of us here who are followers of Jesus and you would unite our hearts to both fear and treasure your name. You tell us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. So help us, Lord, fear you, meaning to respect you, to reverence you, to, to truly see you for how big you are. Satisfy us with your love, your steadfast loves that we've just seen. We come to hear, sometimes, some of us weary, Satisfy us, Lord, with your steadfast love, which is the only love that can fully satisfy. And lead us into truth in a world that is full of lies. May the words of my mouth be pleasing in your sight, Lord. May you, Holy Spirit, do what only you can do, and that is to take the preached word and plant it deep within our hearts and shape us to be more like Christ and to take those who perhaps are here this afternoon and don't know you savingly, Jesus, Show them how much I need you, that they would turn from their sin and turn to you. We pray all of this in the powerful, majestic name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, this afternoon, we are starting the first of four messages, as I said, on biblical friendship. And as we start the series, I want to put two questions before you. Here's the first question. Why does it seem so hard for people to have true and lasting friendships? Why does it seem so hard for people to have true and lasting friendships? It seemed like it was easier when you were younger, but as you get older, it gets harder and harder and harder to the point that many say they don't have any true friends, acquaintances. Why is that? Well, I think a major reason that making true friendships has become so hard is that we have removed God from society. We've reduced people as a result to cosmic accidents. And when we do that, people really cannot have value, dignity, worth, or purpose. People are no longer told that they are made in the image of God and are meant to reflect him. As a result of that, people are fed this lie that they are the product of evolutionary development. You're a grown-up germ. Curious George is your relative. And that has implications. Deborah Lieberman is the associate professor of psychology at the University of Miami. She recently wrote an article on the Evolutionary Origins of Friendship. Listen to what she says, quote, As an evolutionary psychologist, I've connected research on social relationships and emotions for over 20 years. Friendships are an important class of relationships that evolved in response to the benefits of having additional people beyond family invested in one's welfare. But how do we make other people care? That is, redirect their time, money, and social benefits to us instead of themselves or their kin. The answer, we make ourselves valuable. The evolution of friendships relied on the ability to recognize the unique benefits other people have to offer. If I demonstrate that I value you, then all else equal it pays for you to value me in return. Your increased valuation of me can then lead me to care more about you, and so forth. To the extent that we can make ourselves valuable to each other, we will have a vested interest in keeping each other around, which comes in handy during times of misfortune. End quote. That's evolutionary origins of friendship which, if you think about it for a moment, explains what we see in the, in the culture, and explains why friendships really have no lasting impact. In that worldview, friendship becomes nothing more than using people for personal and mutual gain. Which is extremely sad, because once that individual, or once their value or your value diminishes, or perhaps somebody offers greater value than you do, the friendship ends. In a world of evolutionary thinking, rather than God guiding relationships by his word, which reflects his character, you end up with a society which has no ability to account for unconditional love and sacrifice, which are, by the way, essential for friendship. And so friendships are based simply on mutual or personal gain. You're just using people. Then we wonder why divorce rates are what they are. We wonder why our teens are so depressed and lonely. We wonder why suicide is growing. Because we have removed God from society, and by removing God from society, we have destroyed the very fabric of relationships, and as we are focusing on here, friendships. But the second question If making friendship, why are making friendships so hard? Question number two is, should making true friendships be easier or harder for followers of Christ? Now, we can look at this, we're going to to look at this two ways. First and foremost, we're going to look at it in the most logical sense of what Scripture would make clear. Because true friendships cannot exist apart from God, it would stand to reason that followers of Christ should have the deepest and truest friendships because they know God, they're made in God's image, and they've been redeemed by him. So followers of Christ should have a way easier time making true friendships and deep friendships. I'd go so far as to say this. In the most ultimate sense, it is only the follower of the Lord Jesus Christ that can have a real friendship because a real friendship must be scripturally informed and gospel-driven. But I think all of us can admit it's still pretty hard to make true and deep friendships in the church. Probably because we've taken our cues more from the culture than from the scriptures. So this series on biblical friendships is an important one because what we're going to see this afternoon is that we have been created by we have been created for friendship by the God of friendship. So you're taking notes, the big idea is God created us in his image, which means we were created for friendship. I'll repeat that one more time. God created us in his image, which means we were created for friendship. Now this afternoon, we're going to have only two points. That doesn't mean it's short, though, if you know me. Our first point is the God of friendship. Now, before we go any further, I want to try and offer a definition of biblical friendship that'll be interwoven throughout these messages. But I'm going to be honest, it's I'm not saying this is the end-all, be-all definition of friendship because defining friendship is really hard. It's a lot like trying to define beauty and love. We know it when we see it and experience, but language is never seems to really be able to fully define it and grasp it. So with that understanding, here is the Working definition of biblical friendship for these four messages, and again, my notes are always available, so if you don't get everything and you want them, just shoot me an email. Biblical friendship. A relationship between two people who are united to Christ by faith, marked by love, trust, and sacrifice as they encourage each other unto godliness. I'll repeat it again. Biblical friendship. A relationship between two people who are united to Christ by faith, marked by love, trust, and sacrifice as they encourage each other unto godliness. I hope with that definition alone, you can see how it is completely opposite of what, I believe her name was Deborah Lieberman, I said. Yeah, Deborah Lieberman said about evolutionary friendship. Now, to start understanding biblical friendship, just we have to understand something of who God is, which is where everything is. You can understand nothing in this world if you do not first understand or seek to understand who God is to the degree that he's revealed himself. So we're going to do some basic Trinitarian theology here, and I hope you'll just see why this matters. As Christians, as those who follow the Lord Jesus Christ, we believe that there is only one true God, but that this one true God exists in three distinct persons. And those persons are God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. They are distinguishable as persons, but they are one in essence. They are one in nature. All three of them are co-equal, co-eternal. All three of them are God. We're not saying that there's one God and sometimes he appears as the Father and some other times he appears as the Son and other times he appears as the Spirit. We're saying that there is one God in three persons. At Jesus' baptism, we see Jesus, God the Son, going into the water. We We hear God the Father speaking out, Behold, my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. And we see the Holy Spirit, God the Spirit, descending on him like a dove. We can't fully explain it, but that's because our minds are fine that they're limited. But it doesn't mean it's not true. It's not a contradiction. It's a paradox. But we hold to the fact that there is one God who exists in three distinct persons. We call that the Trinity. That does not make us polytheistic. We're not saying there's three gods. Polytheistic would mean poly, many, theos, theistic, gods. Many gods, we're not. We are monotheistic. Monos meaning one, and the word theos meaning God, one God. This is important. This is a bedrock foundation for us to understand friendship as we go forward. Now, I'm going to briefly try to explain how all that interacts. And again, that's a whole separate message. We have one on our website. If you were to go um, during the Attributes of God sermon series, we have one on the Trinity. But let me say this. We have God the Father, and we have God the Son, and they love each other. And the love that exists between God the Father and God the Son is so great, it is so profound, that a whole other person exists to express that love. And that person is the Holy Spirit. And all three have existed from all eternity. So we believe in this. We hold to this. So turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. Because me saying it doesn't make it true. And in Genesis chapter 1 alone, we see this Trinity beginning to, to, to come forth from the pages of Scripture. Genesis 1:1 says, "In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth." Interestingly, though, the word for God there is the Hebrew word Elohim. It's a pl- it's the, that, that noun is in the plural. But then it says, "created in the singular." We see that again in verse 27, that is repeated. So God created man in his own image. So we have this singular act done by this plural type God. And then in Genesis 1-2, we see that taking shape. The earth was without form and void. Darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering above the face of the waters. So we have God creating. We have the Spirit of God there. In Genesis 1-26, verse 26, God's having a conversation, and it says, let us make man in our own image. Us, plural. It's a conversation that God is having within the Trinity. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit are one. And in Genesis 1, what does it say? How how did God create? By his word. Well, in Genesis, in John 1.1, it says, in the beginning was the word, and the word is with God, and the word was God. So in this first chapter of Genesis, what do we see? We see there is a God who is creating and he is ruling by his word, which in John tells us is Jesus, and by his spirit. And so we see hints here of the Trinity beginning to take take shape and forth out of Scripture. Why does that matter as we talk about friendship? Because if God did not exist in a relationship within himself, within the Trinity, we could not say that God has always been a God of relationships. We cannot say that God has always been a God of friendship. This is the point I love to make when I talk to men and women who are Muslims, as they speak of Allah. Who was Allah loving before he made anything? He had no one to love. Love demands an object. Relationship demands an object. So Allah was not a a God of love. Allah is not a God of relationship. Therefore, Allah is really not a God because he has needs. He's not all sufficient. But the one true God, the God of the Bible, exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It has always been in perfect relationship with himself, which leads to the question that all my children have asked me at some point. He did. What was God doing before he made the world? Every kid asks that, every adult thinks it has questioned it. Well, the answer to that is that each member of the Trinity was perfectly loving, rejoicing, and delighting in each other. God was existing, you could say in perfect friendship with himself before anything was made. And we see Jesus pointing to this very truth in the Gospel of John chapter 17. John chapter 17, verse 24. John 17 is Jesus' high priestly prayer. And as he's praying, look what he says in verse 24 with me. Father which that term alone implies relationship, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundations of the world. Now you can't read through John's gospel and not come to the conclusion that Jesus is God. That's why they crucified him. And he is saying, before the world ever existed, you loved me. Relationship. Our God is a God of relationship, not a God of isolation. And there is a relationship on perfect love and delight in one another. Now, that leads to another question, right? I encourage you, as you read the Bible, ask the, all the questions that come to mind, articulate them, search them out. Well, if, if God existed in perfect, all-satisfying relationship before he made anything, if each member of the Trinity is fully delighting in the other, why make anything at all? Well, he didn't create because he had needs. It's not that God was up there like, you know, these relationships are good, but I'm you know, i just not satisfied enough. I just need to bring some more people to the party. It's not, it's not as good up here yet. It's not that. It's not that God was lonely or bored. He didn't create out of need. Acts chapter 17, verse 25 tells us, speaking of God, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. No, it wasn't that God created out of some need. Rather, out of the overflow of the love, the delight, the joy that he has in relationship, in friendship with himself in the Trinity, it spills over and he creates for his glory. Turn to Isaiah chapter 43. Isaiah chapter 43, verse 7. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, who I formed and made. God made everything, and specifically made us, so that we can know him and magnify him by delighting in relationship with him. to magnify God in this way, right? For his glory. Dr. John Piper has helped me with this illustration to come to understand it. We magnify God like a telescope. We make that thing which is so big that we can't really see it properly, and the telescope helps bring it into perspective so we can see it for what it is. I uh, maybe a month ago, I went over to the Gazaldo's house and they have this amazing amazing telescope. And I always just see the Big Dipper, and I'm like, that's cool. But I went into this telescope and I looked in and I realized there was things around the telescope, around the Big Dipper. I had no idea. It's just so big, I couldn't even see it. It brought it into vision for me. When we glorify God, it means that we live in such a way that the immensity of God becomes somewhat visible in us to others. And that is done beautifully through true biblical friendships. God has created us to make himself known and to be enjoyed. My question now for us this afternoon, as we unpack just a little bit here of the the God who has always existed in perfect relationship, perfect friendship within himself in the Trinity, does your view and understanding of God have a place for God being a God who loves friendship? Does your view of God have a category that has friendship as a part of who he is? Or do you, when you think of friendship, do you think, well, that's, that sounds kind of below God? He's, he's mighty, he's Lord, he's King, he's Creator, he's up there. Does your view of God have a, a God who is a God of friendship? You know, I've talked to lots of people over the years in the church, and somehow, this false idea has crept into the church that friendship is almost a worldly thing it's not it's central actually to god's very character we're going to see more of this in the coming weeks sometimes we say well we what we really need is fellowship not friendship but did you know biblically the idea of fellowship is actually more impersonal than friendship Friendship is actually more personal and intimate than the idea of fellowship. The word often used for friends in the New Testament is phileo, which is a form of the word love. Friendship is not below God. And I want to turn our attention to one more thing before we go to our second point. Turn with me to the book of First Timothy chapter 1. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, go down with me to verse 11. It's interesting, up to this point, he's cataloging all of these kind of sinful practices. Then in verse 11, he says, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. The good news, gospel, right? The good news of the glory of the blessed Glory is the, the, the excellencies, the matter of God. The good news of the excellencies of the blessed God. But that word blessed there is the Greek word for happiness. And we just saw, you know, in the, in the children's message that God never changes. So what God was, God always will be. And so God has been eternally happy. Well, what was God eternally happy in before creation? He was eternally happy in the relationship of the Trinity, in that friendship of the Trinity. Friendship is a gift of God that is tied to his nature that should bring about a happiness that is otherworldly in us. It's a happiness that God has chosen to share with us. So what I wanted us to see in that first point is that God's very character is friendship. Which brings us to our second point, the God who made us for friendship. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Church, you are made in the image of God. Every single person is made in the image of God. That means a lot of things. That's a whole sermon series on what does the image of God mean. But in a nutshell, what we can say as it relates to this message is that at the bare minimum, to be made in God's image means to reflect who God is. And that means you and I are meant to reflect God through friendship. I'm curious, I might wonder if we've ever thought about it that way. I reflect God by having friends and by being a true biblical friend. The God who from all eternity existed in perfect fellowship and friendship within the Trinity makes us in his image so that we can be friends to him and reflect him as we're friends with others. We're going to see in two weeks that we are made for friendship with God. And in the week after that, we're going to see how do we cultivate this friendship, true biblical friendship with one another. But out the gates, I want you to understand, I really want you to see That part of being an image bearer is the pursuit of true friendship. Now, I've been reading a lot of books on friendship the last few weeks. One of the best books I've read is a book called Made for Friendship by Drew Hunter. And In the second chapter of the book, he said something I had never, ever realized. I've been chewing on this for the last two weeks. He writes the following quote. The first problem in human history, the first problem on the pages of Scripture, the first problem in any human life was not sin, it was solitude. God announces Adam's problem and then parades the animals before him. Why this and why now? So that Adam might feel his need for community. The animal parade made a point. Apparently, pets alone won't do. Even man's best friend passed by without special notice. This is because Adam didn't need a pet. He needed another person. Animals are special, but human friendship is of a higher order. This takes place before sin enters the world. That's significant. Satan is not yet slithered in. The forbidden fruit has no fingerprints, and Adam's conscience remains clear. The first problem in human history, the first problem on the pages of Scripture, the first problem of in human life was not sin, it was solitude. Let's read it, Genesis 2, verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. Which is striking because in chapter Genesis one thirty one. He says, and God saw everything he made, and behold, it was very good. How do you make sense of that? Genesis 1 is like a 30,000-foot level of creation. Genesis 2 is zooming down on a ground level. So do you see that from the very beginning, God intended us to experience this life in friendship chiefly with him, but also in friendship with one another? Now, perhaps there is a really just biblical person right now who's looking at the context and trying to do exegesis on the fly. And you're thinking, I don't know, Pastor Alex. The immediate context here is, this is talking about marriage. God is bringing a wife to Adam, not a friend. Immediate context, yes, he is bringing a wife. But there's a principle here, too, that it's not good for the man to be alone. So in immediate context, we say it's good for women to be alone, not men. No, we're not. that's not what the text is saying. The text is saying that humanity was created for close relationships with one another and friendship. Are husband and wife are spouses not friends? How about those who never marry, who God has called to a life of singleness? Does that mean that it's okay for them to be alone? This is just, no, that's not what it's saying. Yes, it's a wife that God has brought to Adam, but it is a friend also. Spouses are friends. Plus, Scripture tells us that in heaven there is no marriage. And yet we're all together celebrating, enjoying, praising God as a family in Christ and as friends in Christ. So Genesis 2.18 is a loud and clear declaration that humanity was created for true friendship with God and with one another. Friendship is central to life, Friendship is not an optional part of your life. It is necessary. It is part of God's design. Friendship is essential to being who God made us to be and who God has redeemed us to be. To not intentionally pursue and cultivate biblical friendship is actually to reject God's purpose and design. Now, I can anticipate this phrase that some of you may be thinking because I was thinking it. But all I need is God. All I need is the Lord to be happy. That phrase is 100% true, but also 100% incomplete because it has to be unpacked. If all we needed was God, God, Why did God say it is not good for the man to be alone? It's not simply for procreation. I mean, Adam had everything he needed. He had food. He had God. Because God created us to experience relationships because as we experience relationships... We experience something of what God has within Himself in the Trinity in these relationships of friendships. While it is absolutely true that our greatest need is God, it does not mean that that's all we need. Let me unpack what I mean by that. God has wired us, created us in such a way for these friendships. We're not called to be. Christian monks, this isn't a call to, for monasticism where we should be living in seclusion to others, living alone, only crawling out of our own little hobbit holes on Sunday to go to church and quickly scurry back. That's not the abundant life that God has made us for. We're not going to go to heaven and each be sitting in our own little cloud with little fences around it, high wooden fences like in the suburbs because we don't want people seeing what we're doing, Right? doing our individual prayer and Bible study, and then on Sunday, everybody just kind of jumps off their cloud onto one big cloud, and we come together, and then we disperse again. That's not the picture. Even when we say communion, we talk about all sitting at a big table feasting together in worship of Christ, but together. It is a, heaven is a gathering of friends to the friend that we all share, what a friend we have in Jesus! To drive that point home a little clearer, who has had the let's say this: one, nobody had a closer relationship with God than Jesus on Earth. Nobody did, and yet he sought out friendship. To such an extent that for three years, he had 12 men who never left his side. Was he discipling them? Absolutely. Which actually leads to another truth that would be a whole other message. Discipleship happens within the framework of friendship. Discipleship is not chiefly a classroom environment. It is a friendship environment. He tends to focus on the teacher-student model and the instruction piece of Christ. But Jesus is both teacher and friend. He had friends. To such a degree, if he didn't need friends, why is he asking the disciples to pray for him as he goes to the garden before he's crucified? He invites his friends into his life. He asks them to share his burdens. Luke chapter 12, verse 4. This is Jesus speaking. I tell you, my disciples, no. I tell you, my friends. He calls them friends. tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more they can do. Or how about John 15? A beautiful chapter on abiding in Christ. John 15, verses 13 through 15. Well, let's start at verse 12. Actually, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you, okay? Jesus has loved him. How has he loved him? Verse 13, greater love has no one than this, than someone lay down his life for his friends, which is what Jesus will do. You are my friends, if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. Jesus wasn't beyond friendship. Jesus chose these men to be disciples and apostles and to start the church, but they were his friends. The apostle Paul, he didn't have people fill out a resume and they had a job board, a bunch of elders sit around. Okay, you're good to go on the mission trip. It, you know what? Work's over. We didn't. We just finished that rally in Corinth. I'm, I'm going to go do my own thing. I'll see you tomorrow at nine. They were his friends, Timothy was with him everywhere. Luke was with him everywhere. Sylvanus was with him everywhere. They did life together. These were Paul's friends. You look at how Paul ends the book of Romans, and you can tell the personal friendship nature he had for these people. The disciples to Jesus and to Paul and to all the apostles, the disciples were not projects or patients. They were friends whom were loved. And his disciples understood this and they went forward and taught this. John was the, was, the, was the disciple that Jesus loved, we're told. And the disciple that Jesus loved, John, in his old age, writes a very important truth in the book of 1 John. If you turn to 1 John, chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1, verse 3, starting at verse 3. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ, and we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. The Apostle John wants them to enter into these relationships that they have so that the joy can be complete. There is a sense in which our joy in Christ is not complete if it is not shared with our brothers and sisters in Christ through friendship. Especially as Westerners in here today, especially here in America, we miss the importance of biblical friendship because we're a culture that is so individualistic. That's not the position of the Bible at all. From Genesis to Revelation, we see the story of God creating, calling, and saving a people for himself. It is the story of God turning his foes into friends and bringing them into a family. Church, Genesis 2 is a beautiful picture of friendship. Genesis chapter 2, we see Adam and Eve Enjoying perfect relationship with God and with each other, friendship vertically and friendship horizontally. If we're honest, how many of you, we know that we read that picture of Genesis one, Genesis two, especially that boots on the ground, seeing it all taking place, and, and our hearts are aching for that. Oh, I wish that I could have a relationship with someone where I'm unashamed where I don't have to be scared of being vulnerable, where I am so united to God and with one another that it is just a place that there's peace, joy, and love. In Genesis 3, which we'll hit on a little bit more next week, we know that they had a perfect relationship because there's this hint that God used to walk in the garden with them regularly because when he comes this time after the fall, they hide let me say this, church, pursuing and desiring true friendship is not a sign of weakness, and it is not sinful. It doesn't mean that you're somehow less spiritually mature. It's actually the complete opposite. To desire biblical, and I'm emphasizing that word, biblical friendships is to desire what God desires for you. It's to live out part of what it means to be made in God's image. To desire and pursue true biblical friendships is actually a sign of spiritual maturity. The image of God cannot be fully expressed simply as individuals. It must be expressed in the covenants of friendship. Now, there is a word of warning there, of course, To live for and to be consumed by the desire of friendship, that's wrong because that's idolatry and one can easily fall into that ditch. But simply for the fear of falling into that ditch doesn't mean we shouldn't pursue it. It means we should hold that much more fast to Christ. Friendship rightly pursued and rightly cultivated will actually point us to the love, joy, and fullness of God that awaits us in eternity. And so, true biblical friendships, though imperfect in this world, are a foretaste of the rich friendship we will have with God and with each other in the new heavens and the new earth. And I just have to ask no show of hands. Do you have friends like that? Do you have true biblical friends? Are you walling yourself off from people, or do you think it's somehow a sign of weakness and immaturity? Or do you think that somehow it's more spiritual just to spend all your time by yourself in the Bible in prayer, never with God's people, building true friendships? I pray for myself and for all of you that our relationships, our true biblical friendships will be something we will pursue and that God will bring into our lives. We're going to, in the coming weeks, look at friendships that are, friendship is founded on the gospel and friendship with God and cultivating friendships. But I want to encourage you to pray for God to give you at least a desire and an intentionality to pursue and cultivate biblical friendships with the ones you have now. And I will say this, I, I understand it can be really, really hard and really scary and difficult to build these friendships, especially for those who have been burned. Put yourself out there and you were betrayed. You were backstabbed. You were abandoned. You were left out. And every time that happens, your heart gets a little harder. And so here I am up here telling you that God wants you to give yourself to this, but you're like, you don't know what I've been through. You don't know how many times I've been burned. So many people have left me. That, you know, I can't have biblical friendships. I guess I'm just not friendship material. It's not true. God didn't make you defective. Don't let the sins of others keep you from pursuing true biblical friendship. C.S. Lewis wrote in his book, The Four Loves, the following. There is no safe investment. To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly be broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The alternative to tragedy where at least to the risk of tragedy, is damnation. The only place outside of heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers and perturbations of love is hell, End quote. The pursuit of friendship, even biblical friendship, is risky business because we live in a fallen world. It is completely worth it because it is God's call and God's design for your life. And we in Christ should give ourselves to this because when you fail as a friend and when someone fails you as a friend, we have the beautiful luxury of extending the gospel of grace to one another. The reward of biblical friendship outweighs far outweighs the reward of not having them. There is great reward in living out the image of God in us. as men and women who are seeking to follow Jesus in this life, we're gonna toil against sin, and that means we are going to be imperfect friends. That should actually be a comfort. You don't have to put up a front. You don't have to wear a mask. You don't have have to have it together all the time. When you fail a friend, you can say, you know what, I failed you because I'm actually going through this thing. And then that friend has an opportunity, or you have the opportunity to say, you know what, let's encourage one another with the gospel. Because that's the foundation of our friendships, the gospel. Biblical friendships are worth pursuing. God created us for it. Before we close, there's a word for perhaps anyone here this afternoon who's not a follower of Christ. You were created by God and for God. You were made in his image to be able to not only reflect him, but to relate to him as a fr- in friendship. But your sin has broken that image of God in you. And your sin has made you an enemy of God rather than a friend of God. But if you're here today and you humble yourself, if you repent of your sin, which means to turn away from it, to forsake it, and to trust in the perfect life, The substitutionary death and the victorious resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, you can be forgiven. You will be forgiven of your sin. This is why Jesus came. Listen to what he says to you in Luke 19, verse 10. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. We see not only that in Matthew chapter nine, verse thirteen, he says, "For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners." Jesus came for you. Jesus came to make forgiveness and friendship available through faith. So I beg you this afternoon to turn away from your sin and turn to Christ. Your relationship with God will be fully restored. You'll be brought into friendship with God. Jesus stands ready at this very moment to have you as his friend for all eternity. And I pray that you would receive him today. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in the name of Christ. Father, so often... We look to your Son, to you, Lord Jesus, as Lord, as Savior, as King, and that is true, and that is to be proclaimed loudly for all eternity. But so often we forget to proclaim that Jesus is also our friend, that you, Lord Jesus, are our friend. That you don't simply sit as a king who governs over us for our well-being, but that you are truly a friend who delights to be with us, so much so that you live in us by your Spirit. And I pray, Lord, for myself and for all of us here, that first and foremost, we would richly prize, pursue, and cultivate our friendship with you. And out of that, you would strengthen us to pursue, strengthen, and cultivate our friendships with our brothers and sisters in Christ we would never think we're too spiritual for friendship, that we're too spiritual for laughter, that all you care about, Lord, is for us to be very seriously minded, deep in study. I think of you, Lord Jesus. You went to weddings. You were invited by sinners. You were, yes, a man of sorrows, but you are also the blessed God who from all eternity has resided in perfect happiness in the fellowship within the Trinity. And you invite us into that friendship. So help us be men and women of Christ who pursue friendship with our glorious God, who love the friendship that we have with our Lord and Savior, our King, who is also our friend. And out of that, may we, with great joy, intentionally pursue friendship with one another. Because that's what it means in part to be made in your image. We pray these things in the glorious name of Christ. Amen.